Before we start, I just want to say that we do talk about suicide in this episode, which may be triggering for some listeners. And if that's the case, then please do turn off now and we'll hope to have you back on the next episode. Welcome back to the Understanding Men podcast, which is basically two guys talking about the things that men could but don't talk about anywhere near enough. I'm Luke Sutton and I'm here with my great friend Fraser Franks and I would like to welcome a wonderful guest today, Simon Cusden. So Simon is an ex-professional cricketer, played for Kent and Derbyshire. I don't think we actually ever played against each other, but I'm not no. sure. No, no we, that's probably a good thing with our <laughs> with our wild ways <laughs> in the past. Simon has has had a you know well documented recovery path from addiction, which he talks about incredibly, and now works as a, a private coach for high performing males who are uh, you know suffering with mental health challenges, burnout, grief, all, all sorts of different challenges. But most importantly, Simon is a mountain of a man in so many ways. Simon and I could not talk to each other just because of schedules and things like that for months. And then within three minutes of us talking, we're into the deepest conversations uh, that's possible. So I've really been looking forward to having Simon on on this podcast and he's going to offer us so much. So Simon, welcome. How are you today? I'm really good, Sats. Thank you so much. And um, Fraser, it's great to meet you as well, mate. I've heard so much. And I've been following your LinkedIn journey, Fraser. So it's just been, uh, I've been looking forward to just getting on on the call with you both. Yeah, it's an, it's an honour. It's, it's truly an honour. Yeah, well, thank no, you. Thank you, mate. You are actually our second ever guest. Right? I think that's a sort of big deal. Well, we'll make of it a big deal. I want us to talk about the work you do now, the coaching work. And could you just talk us through it, explain it to us exactly what you do, who you're coaching? I know that phrase is a, a little bit in inverted commas, but who you're coaching, what the work's all about uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah, thanks. I, I guess it started uh, organically and fluidly. I was working a salaried marketing job, just trying to make some money to pay for the rent during just after lockdown, having got back from a decade or so in Australia and putting myself back together as a as a man in recovery, you know, like I married my wife, Jess, and we decided to have children. And it started to, you know what it's like when you get in recovery, the phone rings, and it's usually someone who wants to know how to get sober or, but my phone rung maybe six or seven years ago. And it was a phone call that that started me off on the journey. It was actually, it wasn't a phone call. It was a Facebook message. I was a year in recovery and I had a Facebook message from a stranger that said, I don't know you. No, you don't know me, but I'm at the gun range and I've left a suicide. I've left a note for my daughters and it was a Friday night. And um, I don't know, I'm messaging you because someone at the cricket club said you'd been in this place. And that was how, that was six years ago or five years ago. And I kind of just, I was quite tired and I didn't really know how to respond but I decided to respond quite boldly. You know, when I don't know what to do, I just decide to sort of wing it a bit. And I said, can we go for a coffee tomorrow? And can you blow your brains out on Monday? Was what I wrote. <laughs> and it was like this really <laughs> ridiculous response. 
but I kind of, I, I made him laugh, right? And I wasn't, a, I'm not scared of that place, right? I know, I think there wasn't much fear in me because I know what it's like to get to that point and not with children. I don't know that. But I just said, you know, look, can you blow your brains out Monday? And can we go for a chat? And he came in a chat with me on the Saturday and I had no answers. I went in there with no title, no, like, I just thought maybe I could keep the guy alive a couple more days and just give him some sort of idea that someone cared about him because I knew that maybe he got to that point because no one cared or maybe he felt no one had cared. And so we went for a coffee and I did not in any way try and fix him or solve his problems. I wasn't in a position myself. I was really early in recovery. I I had no, you know, my ego has come back quite in quite some big way since then, but I didn't really have much of an ego at that point because I was a year in recovery. I was my mum had died and uh, because of that, I went in there humbly and just had a coffee. And then all we did was set up another coffee and another coffee and another coffee. And I just thought, God, if I could keep this guy alive in between coffees, you know, we didn't become that good of mates. But there's something happened in that little structure where he kept, he got himself well. He went to AA and got himself, he realised he had a problem with alcohol. And now he's in recovery and he's reunited with his wife and his children and all I did was like, was just there, right? Like I was just there. And I, I've reflected on that a lot recently because a lot of the work I do is, you know, we can give it lots of bells and whistles and, and names and labels and, you know, senior leaders and CEOs. It really doesn't matter. I just think that the work I'm doing is, is a response to kind of like that loneliness that men feel when the only option is to take their life or, go to the casino or go to the strip club or, you know, whatever that next step is that is destructive and whether it's ultimately destructive in the biggest sense and they take their own lives or it's destructive in some other like longer way. So I formalized it because I knew I needed to, I wanted to provide for my family and I thought, well, how could I provide for my family and do that? And so, you know, I had a way of generating leads on LinkedIn and made a little profile. And then the first person that came in was the metaverse founder. My niche was always sort of like, I wanted that, I use the word high performing men because I think they have the biggest shame shadow. It's like the most shame in the way are the, are the men who are furthest away from it being okay to be weak and vulnerable. And so I got a metaverse founder who was probably on the verge of selling his company for like a billion, but was wanted to drive into a tree and was obsessed with driving into the tree. And it was that sort of mental obsession with suicide. And then, then came a, a, a law firm, big law firm, and I get sent the global partners. And it's the same. It's it's men who are lonely and there's an element of self-hatred and shame because they have this, whether we call it a dark side or pain or sadness or guilt or shame, it's, there's no, I'm just trying to be a safe place for a man to come and be that. You know, what I learned in that first person who's a, friend now was if you come to me and you share your darkest secrets and I go right here's how we have to fix that it's like nothing's worse and nothing could be more like there's something wrong with you there's something wrong with you there's something wrong with you so I get you know most of it is just creating that safety for men to come and share and it's I guess in some ways it's like a form of confession you know I was thinking about this the other day so much of cultures across time and space that have been really psychologically safe you could always go to the priest or the shaman or the medicine man or the chief to go and just 
let your shit out or we have groups that we get to go into safe spaces where we can go in and go here's my darkness and everybody just no one judges each other because we all go oh god i'm full of that you know and so that's the coaching side of it and then as a result i've been asked to come in and do some webinars and it's expanded a bit and that's a bit more of a I guess that's a bit further away from the core of what I've what I've been doing, which is to, just to hold some space. It's great for me because I, it reminds me of what's inside me all the time. By the way, I love the way you just described <laughs> all of that because in the earlier episodes we talked about the old construct or the of what a man is deemed to be, and that that it, it's a really lonely place. You know that kind of society construct that's been there for generations. And you, you sort of just talk about your work as if you're just like having a coffee. But what you're providing for a man in that space is 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 wonderful. But can you give me a, an idea of, of the sort of things you might do with them? You know, is it, do, you, do you have a without, you know, going too much into depth, but do you have a, a structure or a pattern or is it just a conversation? Yeah, there is a lot of structure, actually. And it's something I'm developing all the time because I'm only just over a year in. So I would say that every conversation I have, I'm learning so much. So it did start with like safety, but I think I don't underestimate the importance of building trust. So for me, the first thing I need to do is is be that non-judgmental, safe space. But also um, the initial sessions, I try and share who I am. You know, I found a lot of therapy to be quite sort of, there's me and then there's you and then there's this barrier between us, right? That was what therapy and counselling was always that for me, which is great. But I, I try and and I'm pretty open with that. I say, look, there's the, the strength of the work that we'll do will be based off of the relationship that we can form. And so all of my clients have my WhatsApp and we send voices and there's no real boundaries in between the sessions. I mean, if there needs to be, but most of these men don't have any, they're not oversharers, you know, there's not, it's a, it's an openness to try and create. And then, you know, my behind the scenes, what I try and be, and it takes time, is I try and sort of be an intelligent immune response. To, to, so intelligent in a sense, I'm really trying to understand who the individual in front of me is. And that can take 10 hours. You know, you want to know where they've been, their story, their intimate relationships, their deepest thoughts, their feelings. And the structure that I do, and it, it's helped me stay sober and, and today to date it's quite yogic i guess in in its in its you know there's a union of all these different parts of us so you've got my mental emotional physical spiritual relational financial and environmental and we can we can spend one session on one of those things but it's trying to get a balanced view of a person across those areas and most of the men are financially, they're doing really, really well. Physically, some of them are doing great and some of them aren't. Intimate relationships are always an absolute shocker because they valued uh, achievement over fulfillment. They valued um, success in attainment rather than in embodiment, you know, in becoming rather than, so in, in having rather than becoming. And a lot of them are waking up to this idea, you know, you're climbing up a ladder and then you get to the top and you realize it's on the wrong wall. You know, a lot of them are at the top of that ladder and I, I, a lot of suicides, I think are men getting to the top of this ladder that they're doing to keep their parents, you know, get their parents love or 
become this thing that never comes. You get to the, and then you look and you realize it was all empty. And then what do you do? You know, it took a lifetime to come up the ladder. So I think a lot of them are up there and it's fascinating to be a part of. Luke said that I'd be, um, I'd be blown away when I hear you talk. And it's just, it, this, this area just interests me so much. And he, he promised me a Viking and I'm looking at a Viking as well. So <laughs> you're tick, you're ticking both boxes. <laughs> <laughs> one of the, one of the elements that you talk about there, have you noticed, you know, through all of our careers as professional athletes, and then you have these high performing, you know, often really well paid men. Do you find that a lot of these unhealthy behaviours around attaining or getting whatever it is stems from some kind of dysfunctional childhood. Do you dig right back into that element as well? Not as much as you'd think. Mm. I think a lot of the healing is actually paradoxically in embracing that desire rather than trying to find the reason it's there. You know, it's like, Mm. let's go back into the past and find out where the dysfunction began. Has a slightly different feeling from, we're born with a primal nature, which is, we can't go against that. So I think that very, the very first thing I try to do is embrace the desire to uh, transcend the reality we're in, which leads us to try and attain. So try and start there first. Otherwise, everything's just a problem, right? Mm -hmm. And so if I go into childhood, and I think that's one thing I've really, you know, I've ripped my childhood to pieces. And in some way, I didn't really find wholeness until I truly embraced my, my spirit to go into the unknown and, you know, to take, to take the lead and to take charge. I think, so to use the ladder as an analogy, it's like, let's go back into childhood and work out why you like climbing ladders and let's never climb a ladder ever again because something must have been wrong if you're climbing ladders up against walls. It's more like how fortunate we are that people climb ladders and go up at walls to see beyond so we can move forwards and transcend where we are. So, so something in the core of the work we do is kind of like, what you embrace, it says that what you embrace, you erase. What you resist persists. It's kind of more of an embracing of that primal nature, I think. Yeah, so it's, it's essentially, it sounds like a, the, the more awareness you have of yourself, the more ability you then have to to yeah. essentially adjust or or heal or you know if you're like yeah I'm I can see actually that I've I've just wanted to attain things rather than embody things I've just wanted to get that car rather than feel a passion for yeah. my purpose in life essentially I, is that what you're saying a greater awareness just gives you that ability just to speak about my clients a lot of them that attainment has provided homes for their children it's provided jobs for people so they're that attainment, there's an element of that attainment that is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think when we throw attainment out the window, we're throwing out a lot of what we need from our men, which is attainment. We need we need this from our men because, you know, the, the men I work with, they, they provide people with jobs, which means they're putting food on people's tables. There's just like a line there. So it's like, where did you get lost in it? Or So it's a bit more about balance and trying to find the... It's really good for me to speak about this because I don't I don't get to bounce this off too much. I just think about it a lot in between my sessions. But <laughs> a lot of these guys are extraordinary. 
you know, let's let's just pretend all men are extraordinary. Even the, let's just start there. I think it's really important to start there, and it's an extraordinary thing to have passion and desire to achieve, right? But at some point, they have to let it go because they're gonna, you know, that they, they don't need to provide for their children anymore. They're gonna mm. retire. They're gonna get old. They have to give up their bodies. They're gonna die one day, and so it's like, um, you know, the young lion that becomes the king of the jungle. He's only the king of the jungle until the next young lion comes along. And then the practice is to let it go and heal and become nobody. So I would say most of my clients are 60, 65. So they're coming towards the end of it and they're now realizing they've got to let it go. I just, I, I want to, um, I want to go into this high performance thing in a minute because, because obviously we've all come from, I, I always feel a bit embarrassed still thinking that we came from a high performance background, but I guess we, we did. We came from professional sports. So I, I want to go there. I know you watched, um, or you've listened as well to one of the previous episodes where we we discuss yeah. about being a provider, and I, there's that clip of me saying, and I feel an enormous desire to provide for my family. I feel real pleasure out of it, etc. On that point of these guys being exceptional providers, let's just go there. That bit of a man wanting to be a provider, and you kind of hinted at it that we need to almost celebrate it. And you know, tell me what your thoughts are around that. Is it a primal desire? Is it necessary in today's world? Has that got lost a bit or misinterpreted? What's your views on that? Have either of you guys seen the book um, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover by Robert Moore and uh, Glover? So it's a it's a book about archetypes. So I don't know if you guys know anything about archetypes, but archetypal energy is ancient. It's within the mind. So something like a king, right? This is an archetypal energy. And a magician is like your shaman and lover. And it's like these archetypes. And it's the most profound book because it, it, these are our primal energies. They're, these archetypes are our primal energies. And they have a, a positive side and a, and a dark side. So the theory is that there's a king inside every man, right? There's a king and a warrior. And the warrior has a, an act, has a shadow part. So the king, the function of the king is to provide fertility to the kingdom so to provide fertility and blessings so it's like there's functions to the king energy and so for t- to provide fertility is to provide abundance so deep in the core of the king archetype is the desire to provide abundance for the kingdom right and now when you talk about that that's what we tap we go yeah i want to provide i want to give everything i've got i want i don't want anybody to lack i want everybody to have everything that they need and it's when we invert that and make that something that's bad, you push it into its shadow form, which becomes the tyrant. So the tyrant king is the one, you know, that's a tyrant. We all know what a tyrant king like, you know, my way or the highway. And the weakling is the other shadow part. So a weakling and a tyrant. There's all these archetypal energies. I think it's the core of every man to what, I mean, I see it in my children. They just want to stand up and be the king, right? They just want to stand there and then what we do is we go, no, sit down, be quiet, don't make so much sound, get small, be quieter, you know, because, you know, you're in Starbucks and roaring like a lion in Starbucks, it's just <laughs> unacceptable. But I think, you know, I think there's there's only, there's nothing good that can come from repressing these, this desire that we have to provide blessings, abundance, fertility to um, populate, you know, to have children. Talking of young men and the next generation of men, what do you make of like the current 
male influences that they're often exposed to. You know, growing up, as Luke talked about, his 14-year-old son, the kind of male influences that they're then exposed to. What do you what do you think of that at the moment? Well, I love what you guys did in the previous podcast, the way you spoke about, you know, Andrew Tate's come along and um, I've really studied Andrew Tate and I've tried to be as objective as I can because I can see he's triggered a massive response because mm-hmm. there's something in Andrew Tate that has called forwards something in masses of boys, right? And we can't ignore that. We can't just go, it's wrong because he's got, he's got what we all want from our boys, which is for them to follow something aspirational. Now his energy is, he is who he is. It's completely safe to say he's not the correct role model for young boys to be following. But the question is, what is? My teacher teaches that, you know, you have your balls, you have your head and you have your heart. And men lead from their balls, they lead from their head and they lead from their heart, right? You lead from your nuts, which is your instincts. You lead from your instincts, which is like, take, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Or you lead from your head, which is like your intellect, which is science. And then it's the lead from the heart. And he said, but it's when all three move into one, that's when you get like a, a masculine leader. But I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I don't know if I, we're meant to live in cultures where phones are so accessible. I don't. I think boys are meant to aspire to be their own fathers and then they're aspire, meant to aspire to something bigger. I'd, you have so much access to so many people now. I think it's so scary because, you know, I want to keep the phones away from my children as long as I can until they've got some fully formed structures of what a man is. You know, I want them to get to know their granddad, get to know me, get to know their higher power. Oh God, I, I end up talking about Andrew Tate far too much. I was just joking on social media. I'm going to get called out for a fight at some point, some sol- some sort of YouTube fight, which I'm <laughs> definitely not up for. Uh, no, I, I, I think the thing that Andrew Tate really highlighted for us, and I, I love the way you talk about it, Simon. It's like we have to look at this objectively and go, what is, why is he connecting? And the biggest thing that comes from me is, is connecting because there was nothing there. There was a gap. There was a vacuum. And like, you know, the history of time shows us that the, the leaders of, of whatever, whether you agree with them or not, are people that say, I've got the answer. You need to follow me. And we as lemmings go, great, because we're all sat here as human beings going, what are we doing here? What, what, what What's going on? Someone comes up in a vacuum and says, I know. And I, whenever I think about that connection with Andrew Tate, I just think it just yeah. reminds me of why we're doing what we're doing, because we're trying to fill a space now. You know, we're trying to fill that space. And really interesting, our post on TikTok yesterday evening, again, featured Andrew Tate. And uh, it was the first time we got a bit of messages from people who obviously kind of like him or don't like him. You got a real snapshot of what it was, what it is. And you got young men going, yeah, but you see, what he's saying is if you work hard enough, you're going to get a Ferrari. That's and and I like really, and then other people replying, and it, and it just being this this battle, you know, like almost like a kind of a lot of the modern day battles that go on, and it's come from a, a vacuum that's been created. You know, like I said, I've really watched Andrew Tate because I, I I sort of what's going on here. He's telling young boys to take care of their bodies. He's telling young boys to go to the gym. He's telling young boys to be their own sovereign point of decision-making and so not to assign power outside of them. There are things that he's bringing to the table which we we can't ignore and just dismiss because he's Andrew Tate and because the BBC have got loads of pieces about it. Actually, if you watch him, 
there is something truly empowering about what he's giving, which is fine, totally fine. It's the misogyny and it's the, the feminine. He's disconnected from his own feminine nature. That's basically what it is. So because he's disconnected from his feminine nature, he's promoting a disconnection from the earth, from love, from connection, from harmony, from from the heart, right? He's So there's there's something there. But what he is doing is fine. He's telling young boys to take care of themselves, their bodies, right? And And also the next, you know, there's nothing wrong with a Ferrari if you if your Ferrari's part of a bigger picture that's you know there's nothing wrong with having a Ferrari the Ferrari's not the answer I just think he's you know he's come into that space in a well it's of you know it's we really don't have to talk to him about it been too much but I think mm-hmm. what need what is required in that space is there's some of what he's saying which is required I want to bring it back to high performance because it's really interesting, isn't it? Right now in, in you know, you've gone Amazon books or whatever, or look, look, or you've searched high performance. I don't think as a society we can get enough of it. You know, it's like it, it goes back to the sort of documentary on, I don't know, it comes out about Michael Jordan. I'm the first flocking to it because I'm, I want to know. I'm like, tell me what what is it that he why is so amazing? And I think high performance fascinates us all. And there's just this this you know real flow of information coming in on it. And we've obviously come from that background. What what's your what's your view on it, Simon? Is what's the cost of it to be more precise? Is it that road to utopia, or is it something else? And if you find that out, put it in a book and then you'll outsell all the other books. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, here's one for your twin boys. Is it a road that you would push them onto? Not push them onto, but, yes. you know, yes. guide them The onto. answer is yes. Okay. Because if, if they exhibit the desire to want to be excellent at something, then for me, I think that's part of the aspirational nature of our spirit is to be perfect and to, 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 to aim for the stars. You can't cut, you, uh, you can't, we can't cut ourselves off from our aspirational spirit because there's some part of us that wants to aim for the stars, right? It's a, it's the first thing we know as children. In in some ways it's our most childlike thing is to, to, to aspire. Right. And so I think it's really dangerous to, to cut off from that. My, my answer to this is in some of the, uh, I'm, I'm really trying to create a bit of a response to this and I'm calling it whole performance. So from high performance to whole performance. So it's this idea of becoming a whole performer and actually being excellent at one thing is not actually being excellent at all. So maybe there's like, if you're good at one thing, is that really that good? Like we've just grown up, we just have a culture that for some reason we idealize people who are good at one thing. So take Michael Jordan, amazing at basketball, shit at so many other things. Let's just call a spade a spade. <laughs> the guy's so unhealthy. You just see it in his face, right? Now I can see that, you can see that. Now he can fly through the air, that's brilliant. But can he hold an intimate relationship? I don't know. Is he a good friend? I don't know. You know, will he live? Will he die a happy man? I don't know. We as a culture idolize people 
who are good at one thing, and we call that high performance. But for me, I don't think that is high performance. I think that that is quite that's toxic and unhealthy. And to be an amazing performer, I mean, if you sat there at the end of your life and your emotional life was balanced, your mental life was folk, you know, and all of these areas of life were in balance and harmony, then you're a high performer. So I think we've almost got to like take the high performance Let's not get rid of it. And I'm using the word whole performance. So, um, you know, Jupiter, my son, wants to be, I mean, he loves to sing, right? So let's say he just like decides he wants to be a singer. And that's almost like something God has given him in the womb. Because some people just come through. You guys, you know, I'm sure Fraser, you just wanted to be a footballer. And Luke, you just wanted to be a cricketer. And something must have been there. But do you, it's teaching people to chase, to to go after that but not sacrifice physical health, emotional health, mental health, intimate relationships, financial responsibility and environmental responsibility. And then I think we can do it more maturely rather than just like, I'm going to go and get that one thing and I'm going to destroy everything in my path. So that's my big thing at the moment. I'm 30, you know, I'm 38, I'm like a baby. And I'm really trying to build a business, be excellent at what I do, take care of my body, show up for my wife, show up for my children, show up for my cats that need feeding twice a day, make sure there's toilet roll in the house, look after the money. And it's like, if I actually do it, and I realize it's a lot, it's very easy for me to come and bury my head in my work, ignore my wife, not feed the cats, not look after the boys, but actually to be able to balance all of those aspects of life, that for me is mastery. So if you take the word high performance, you're talking about mastery. You know, and and we've lost the art of mastery. Robert Greene has a great book called Mastery, and he calls it the there's this loss of the apprenticeship. You know, the apprenticeship is this period of time where you go through and you there's no rewards and it's hard and you have to like really learn from another master. So it comes back to the role modeling thing too, because who are we looking up to? For me, I'm trying to become the role model that I can't really find. I know a lot of men who are balancing things. I know men who have sacrificed their passion and purpose to be with their family. That doesn't work because they end up at 70 deeply resentful of their families because they never went out and tried to achieve their dreams. I know loads of men who have gone to achieve their dreams, but they've ignored their family. That doesn't work because they end up with no relationships, but they end up making loads of money. I know loads of men who have got an amazing body, but they don't spend time with their children. I mean, how a dad can spend 10 hours a week in the gym, I don't know, right? You should, it's ridiculous to me that a ma- you shouldn't have a gym membership when you have a child. You should just be in the garage doing something. But, you know, like it's just ridiculous. So I know all these people of like, I've mastered this, but I haven't done this. I've mastered that. For me, it's like, how do you master the whole thing over a period of time? And for me, you know, I, it's, it's like whack-a-mole. You know, at the moment, my marriage is suffering a little bit. It's, I can't find enough time to love my wife the amount she deserves because I'm trying to provide enough finances for us to move house. And then when I do that, I can see my children are are missing me. And it's like, it's heart wrenching to watch that when my attention is over here, it's not over there. But I know that if I give my attention to my wife over here, I can't build the business, which means we won't better buy a house one day. So it's like, this is the wrestle of masculinity. I think that's the one I'm trying to be in any way. It's, it's trying to, be balanced across the whole thing, you know? And so I've given up on the six pack because I could get a six pack and my kids would never have a bloody dad. 
I might have to reduce my aspirations around the business at times so that I, my Jess gets to see me more. I hope that kind of answers it. That's where I'm at. That's my wrestle at the moment. It's a big one. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I've ever heard that question answered so well. And I've written things down here and being excellent at one thing isn't excellent. I think it's an, an unbelievable sentence to have. I'm doing a lot of work at the minute within professional cricket and it's not a sport that I particularly played or grew up watching. I've seen so many unhealthy behaviours within sport and high performance, if we call it that. And I think sometimes the argument that will get chucked towards is, would Michael Jordan have been the best basketball player if he could, if he did have that balance or if he didn't give absolutely everything to it? But I also wanted to ask you a question of, being excellent at one thing often has an expiry date. So with us, with our sporting careers, if you're going to be excellent at something and it comes to an end at the age of 35, you're going to really struggle at that point. And that shift in identity and end of a career, is that something that you really struggle to deal with if you'd always been known as the cricket player or always had that as your, you know, your one excellent thing or your purpose or whatever it might have been? Well, I think the great thing is, Fraser, my cricket career was a massive failure. No, it wasn't. So it was, no, I'm not having oh, that. No, that's, I'm not no, having no, that. no, it was a massive success. I played f- like 10 games. So I never got that deeply ingrained into that identity. My biggest identity was an alcoholic who's, you know, that was the big one for me was getting off that one. And I was glad to get out of that one. I didn't, you know, I my, my professional cricket career stopped when I was 22. And that's a really good thing because... I didn't have all that time to get ingrained into. I held on as long as I could. I feel, you know, I, I, I've asked myself this question a lot. I, you know, I grew up with someone like an Alistair Cook who's become a knight and is still going to be 40 odd looking back on a career that's over. And it's still all the same. I've spent quite a lot of time looking, thinking, uh, you know, what if my dream had come true and I ended up playing for England, then maybe I wouldn't know some of the things I know now and I've I don't feel like I got it too ingrained in that identity because I didn't have thousands of people or millions of people affirming to me that that's who I am you know you take like a let's take just like a Russell Crowe right like you're Russell Crowe if you're Russell Crowe you can't be anything else or you're Hugh Jackman you're Hugh Jackman you can't be anything else and it's the the problem that's one thing I will be careful with my children is if they ever become famous is not to believe in that identity too much mm. because underneath it, we're all men rather than, you know, a cricketer or a basketball player or what's the difference between a bin man and a cricketer? Well, the way I played cricket, not much. <laughs> it's just a label for something someone does. It's just millions of people adore cricketers or footballers and people don't appreciate bin men. So just because millions of people appreciate one because we've got this culture. I mean, it's a strange thing that we don't appreciate bin men, but we appreciate Michael Jordan. It's a it's a really strange thing, you know. Michael Jordan doesn't come and take my rubbish away. <laughs> and yet, for some reason, he's a someone I should idolise. It's like, well, no, I think the whole thing's a bit backward. And mm-hmm. if I can remain aware of that, then I can appreciate Michael Jordan and the bin man. And I can see that we all have to do something while we're alive and... But maybe there's a couple of people who are excellent bin men. They're just not all over the internet. Mm. I, ju- I just want to add a couple of points to what you guys said, which I, I, I find it all so fascinating. 
the identity thing that Fraser was asking our Simon about. I, I was lucky enough to play professional cricket for a long time, and I get asked that question all the time. And funnily enough, Simon, my response is the same as yours. I'd got to a place with my problems with alcohol, my life, that that identity, I don't want it anymore. I don't. So retirement's not been a problem for me at all. Nothing. It's nothing to do with other work or anything like that. It's like, I don't want to be that person anymore. So it's gone. It's all over. And I, and I think the, the interesting thing that we're talking about, that I love this, that whole performance versus high performance. It's that kind of thing that we've maybe been sold that, you know, if you're going to be an excellent businessman, you can't be a good dad. Or if you're going to be an Olympic gold medalist, you can't be a good person. I just think that's bullshit. Yeah. I think that's real hard line bullshit. I don't know where that's come from. Listen, it, we're, we've only got so much bandwidth. And Simon, you said it so perfectly. You know, put a lot of attention one way, you can't have attention. That's being human. But... I think that the point is that there's that, that kind of we've been suckered into this way of thinking of saying you just have to be excellent on one thing and then that's that's great. Yeah. You know, that's acceptable. And it's almost like, you know, maybe the, the men that that we should aspire to be are the guys, you know, who can who can have a broader look on yeah. it. They can be excellent at lots of things, you know, and I think that's amazing. Simon, I want to just go back to that. You said something at the start, which I wrote it down, which I want to go back to. You said a lot of the people that you work with or co- coach and um, do your work with, there's a shame shadow attached to it. Just explain to me what that means. So take desire, right? Like desire is a something we all have. I think that there's a lot of people who have various ranges of desire, right? So some people you can meet them and they don't seem to have a lot of desire. And then some people have a lot of desire, now, desire is something that sort of transcends good and bad. And if, you know, a lot of the people who desire to make money, they have just desire. And it can manifest itself as, you know, it's the it's primal desire, which is basically to fight, have sex, eat, feast, destroy, kill. These are just words that that you can put in the darker side of desire. You know, the shame shadow is coming out and saying, well, you know, one part is coming out and saying, well, I have a problem. You know, I have a really big problem with pornography or I have a really big problem with lust or, you know. When I was working, it started when I worked in a boarding house in Australia. I had a boy in there who wanted to take his own life. He was only 16 and he'd been, he'd wanted to take his own life for about three months. If we'd got him on day one, it never would have become a thing. When he came to me, he said, I really want to kill myself. Okay, great. Great. What do you mean great? I'm like, you have a mind that wants to know what's beyond. Do you know how amazing that is? What do you mean? Yeah, if you're desiring to take your own life, it just means you want to know what's beyond. Oh, okay. Like two days later, he's not thinking about killing himself anymore because I've just taught him what his mind's all about. What, what, uh, Simon, let me just ask you though. It, presumably there's a duty of care thing there. At what point do you, where's yeah. the line where you go, okay, that's that's just the thought that I need to... to... Yeah, thought. So the, so the answer, Luke, is thought and intent. Right. So a thought, thought and intent. And if you can see the difference, it's just thought and intent. And there is an infinite amount of distance between thought and intent. And you treat thought void of intent. So what we do is we treat people who have thought as if they have intent. 
And that's that's when you create, you start creating repression in people and things like most people, 99% of people, it's just thought that they're really uncomfortable with because they have a conscience. But if you sit there pushing that thought away and pushing it away and pushing it away, it can turn into something. I've heard so many people when I, when, you know, if I go into a group therapy meeting, so many people in there say, you know, they look around and they say, oh, look at our lives and how mad we all think and that kind of thing. But they always say, how lucky are we that we get to be in a room like this where we can just say whatever we want. And that one that you just mentioned there, Simon, I've I've heard that talked about in a meeting. I've heard someone say that they're having those thoughts and you get people that, you know, they, they're almost laughing at it and almost saying, yeah, where else could you say that? I think a big thing that I've always wanted and I've always wanted to try and recreate in some aspect and I'm, you know, I'm only just gone two years sober, but we get these incredible safe spaces that we can often share things like this with because people have been there and they don't judge you. But often I hear people say, why should you have to be an addict or an alcoholic or this or that to experience that? And do you think you could facilitate a room where, you know, men don't have to be addicts or they don't have to be, you know, tick a certain box in order to to share that safely with, with other men? Not only do I think we could, it can be done. I think it has to be done. It has to be done for the survival of our culture. Men need safe spaces to go and share what's going on for them because, and it's with other men. It's with men. Men need men. My wife will say this. Men need men and women need women, right? I've got a best mate. He's one of my best mates now. He was a client and he's a former, he's an army guy and he's been in battle and he's a veteran and he's seen people be blown up and he's, you know, he's got massive. We just used to go for walks, long walks. Okay. And he came to me right in the depths. His wife, his his girlfriend got pregnant and he was struggling and he was going to, he was going to go. And him and I used to go on these long walks. Now, this guy has, I don't know how to put it, but when you're in the room with somebody who's a warrior, right? This guy has been on the battlefield. He's seen everything. This guy's seen more than we could handle. And he's an incredibly strong guy, but he was full of, uh, he'd never had anyone to share it with. They kept sending him to therapists, but he knew it. And anyway, we just go on these long walks and he just we just used to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And he told me everything. Everything was going on for him. And the, the, what I had to hold space for, for that guy, the darkness that was inside him, darkness, all it was was a repressed 10 years of not being able to share what had happened. And, you know, but he's now a completely different person because he has a brother who he can go to is safe. Right. Like even sharing this stuff on this podcast, we have to be aware that people are going to not understand this. Right. So where, you know, you go where you know you're going to be understood. I don't take my problems where they're not going to be understood. I don't put myself through that torture, including with my wife. I don't tell my wife every problem I experience within myself. I tell my brothers everything that I'm going through. And I've got about 10 or 11 or 12 brothers I speak to. You know, I tell my, I've got a few fathers around me. I've got some really older men and I'll go to them with my issues in my marriage and I'll get their advice and I'll tell them what I'm truly going through, right? And then I take my healed whole self to my wife. Because if I took every fear and worry and dark thought I had to my wife, my marriage would be over very quickly, right? Because it's not my wife's responsibility to hold space for my darkness, it's 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 men and fathers and grandfathers and God and meditation and prayer. That's where I need to take that space, take that 
energy to it. And these discussions are great too. But there's a depth we can only yeah. go to here because we have to be aware there's listeners. But if you threw, if you, if us three got on a call where there was no listeners, we'd have a very different conversation because we could, you know, because there would be boundaries and safety. So it's about discernment and awareness. And I'm teaching a few of the younger men that I've got. I've got a couple of younger clients and they just pile everything on their wives. They pile all their fears, all their worries, all their darkness, all their upsets, all of it goes on their wives and they're treating their wives like they're their mothers. Then the sessions become about, no, don't, you know, bring that to me first, bring that into meditation, journaling, you know, but I think men need men to share this stuff. And then we can bring our centered balance to ourselves, to our partners. And then we are holding space for our women and our children and we're holding space for each other. And I think we've, I don't know if that's happening a great deal in the culture as it stands. We get it in a, we get it in our groups, you know, we get it, we get it. And it's amazing. Yeah. There's steps isn't there in this involvement. I think part, part of what Fraser and I always talk about in this podcast is let's have the conversation for other men, yeah. you know? So a man can be listening going, yeah, yeah, that's what I need to hear, but I, I don't know where to talk about it. And, yeah. you know, I found that with podcasts I've listened to, you know, I've related so much. I'm listening in on a conversation and it sort of feels a bit like, I'm involved, even though I'm not. I'm just listening. And yeah. I think this is a... Uh, but we've a got really- to be really careful, Luke, because we've, uh, one thing I'm really realising too is most men, most men are truck drivers and bin men and most men are tradies. And a lot of the information that's out there for men is mm. not for them. You know, a lot of them are people who think in high... Like, there's a lot of men who are just like, they're not, they're more down in their stomach in terms of their area of their body. They're not thinking... They're not super intellectual men. A lot of men are just really wrestling with the darker aspects of life. They don't have the time and space to think. And a lot of what the information I see is good for me, but I see that it goes over the head of a lot of men. And actually what they need is to be met with, it's okay to feel rage, anger, sadness, desire, lust. It's okay. And to feel that is okay. What you do with that is your responsibility. And and it's not okay to do this, this and this, but... I don't know if we're really approaching those men. You know, I think we're approaching a certain kind of men. And I think maybe only 20% of the male adult population is being hit by podcasts. A lot of it's like, it's all it's all a bit out of reach, I think. Yeah. I just want to go back to that, what, you, what you're talking about. You've, you've, you've talked about it a fair amount, but essentially that outlet for men. And I, I, I go back to us having played a lot of sport and that was a real outlet for us, wasn't it? You know, it's like they're a safe space for us. Of And what are we outletting? Yeah. Aggression, fire, frustration. Let's talk about that. Do men need that outlet, whether you're playing sport or not? Because the word aggression, it sounds violent, doesn't it? So it's almost like, it's like, oh, no, 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 that's not good. But let's just go, no, no, it's not violence. But what is that aggression that men need to let out? What do you think, Fraser? <laughs> He's put you on the spot now, Fraser. <laughs> what do I think of the aggression that needs to be let out? I think... Um, well, do you think that... Here's it. Do you think that men need to let it out? Yes. In, a, in some healthy aspect, whether that is for a sport. I know... Things like even things like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu are like really taken off at the minute because it's like it's like a non-violent 
man-on-man wrestling combat there's a lot of like ancient primal things that go into that and it i've heard people talk about it as if it's like a religion and i know a lot of people that do it i i probably took a lot of my aggression onto a football pitch and i was a very very different football player to what i was a person so when i was on the pitch i could be very confrontational i could hit people in a way I wanted to hit them. I'd be very vocal and shouting and swearing. Take me off of the football pitch. I was, uh, when I say scared of confrontation, that was an understatement. I didn't want an argument. I didn't want to fight. I was scared. I was timid. I didn't open my mouth, but I could become this character on a football pitch. So that was a healthy outlet for me. So only talking from my own personal experience, I believe that was a, you know, a, a good one for me. And it it allowed me to maybe express something that I would have probably pushed down and, and felt a little bit ashamed of. Whether everybody has that, I'm not too sure, but I'm sure there's other things away from sport that we could use that, you know, isn't violent or, you know, used as aggression in that, in that way that it's often thought of where it's a bad thing. I think there's there's definitely ways we can use it for for the good. Simon, give us your give us your your thoughts on this. Because I'm slightly cheating here. Because Simon and I have had a private conversation about this, so I, I kind of know. But I love what you just said, Fraser. And um, I think the biggest problem we can do is make the word like aggression a negative word. It's a difficult conversation to have a little bit because you kind of need to know what a man is and what a woman is, for instance. So Jess and I we talk a bit about. I have way less empathy than Jess. Right. I'm not as empathetic as my wife. She's really empathetic and I'm not. And for a really long time, I tried to be more empathetic, but I felt like I was going in the wrong direction. Right. I felt like I was becoming something that I'm not. Right. And I, I'm going to say this. And one of the problems I see is we're trying to make men into women. Right. And men and women where I come from are different. And my lack of empathy is a really bad thing. When I'm in my home and I'm with my wife, I need to be more empathetic. But if a threat came to my door, then the last thing my wife's going to need from me is empathy. Right. So if something came and threatened my family, the last thing I'm going to need is empathy to keep my family safe. Now, that's where that's evolved from. Right. Like the aggression has evolved as a boundary keeping keeping provide and we've spoken about providing but protection right to protect and hold firm and stand up straight right and aggression comes out of like that's within me and i have to honor that that that's been with my ancestors the reason the human race is here is because for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years men have kept the tribe safe right the tribe have been kept safe by men so women could give birth And women have been giving birth because they can relax and they can give birth. A woman can't give birth if she's stressed. And so the the ways that tribes have evolved and where we've evolved as human beings is the masculine would keep the perimeter, keep it safe from threats, other tribes, animals. And also there's an element of aggression that's required to go and get food. Right. Like so take my freelance business, for instance. My coaching requires no aggression. It needs femininity and softness. If I need to go and generate leads for my business then I need to get my spear and I need to get my Viking on and go out and get some leads, right? I can't pick up the phone without a form of aggression and going out and getting leads. 
And if I don't go out and provide, if I don't go out and hunt down leads and find conversations and go after that, then my business will die and my family will not be fed. And I've noticed recently there's two different energies in there, right? Like to go out and get leads, there's an element of aggression that's needed to provide and protect for my family. So it's it's a bit deeper for me than just sport. It's more like I told Luke about, I got taught this thing by a really good friend of mine who studied with the Mayan zero chiefs for like 20 years and the tribal, the warriors of the tribe, when they used to get back from the hunt, they would get to the boundary of the tribal space and they would be met by the women and they would be in ceremonial warrior gowns covered in blood because they'd gone out and hunted to provide for the family. And as they stepped over the boundary, they were undressed ritualistically by the women and they were washed before they came back into the tribal space. And there was an agreement that that energy is needed out there to keep us safe and provided for, but it's not welcome in here, right? And then when they came into the tribes, they would chop wood and wash clothes. But as soon as they were required to go back out and hunt again, they would then ceremonially with music and drumming, they would put back on their gowns and they trained within the ritual space to remain sharp as warriors. Now, where does that sit in our culture now? I don't know. I don't know what that means right now, but I know that's in my DNA. I can feel it. I can feel that in my DNA. I can feel it, right? And if I ignore that, then I start repressing it. And I have to put that on. My 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 office is a no, it's an out of bounds space. My wife doesn't want to come in here because this is kind of like, I need to be a little bit aggressive in here sometimes. And, you know, I need to come down into my office and sometimes I need to go and generate leads because I'm starting a business. And if I, you know, businesses fail, 95% of them fail because I need to go and make money sometimes. Now I do that with honor and rituals and values. I need to be aggressive with values. It's a very complicated question. You know, and I, and I think, would jujitsu help me? Probably. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> I'm not jujitsuing you, Simon. That's uh, I'm not. That's not happening. Yeah, that's well. <laughs> can I? Can I just add into this? Is it? Um, I mean, I find that fascinating. Mm. I, I really do. And it. And what I know from this podcast is going to challenge you. This podcast, listening to this, is going to challenge you and go, "Oh, how do I feel about that? Is that right? Is that wrong? I don't know." Yeah. That's great. That's great. And, you know, all the all the time we would say we're welcome to opinions, whatever, agree, disagree, it's okay. But I'll give you an ex- example of what um, Simon's talking about because I have thought about this a lot and relate to it a lot. Once upon a time, and I, I can't remember his name, which is awful, We, when I was at Lancashire, we um, took a, a Sussex batter on loan. He was an opening batter. He might have been on trial. He might have been on trial, I think. And we were all sat around in the changing rooms and it went round. Who's the nastiest piece of work you've played against? And um, yeah, you know, I was just sort of sitting there. I was quite interested in conversations like that. And it came round to it. And he looked at me and he went, "You." <laughs> <laughs> and I was a really nasty piece of work to play against. Yeah. Really nasty. And I was horrible. And and it's that thing in my head that you know I was saying about that rage in my head of yeah. going. And it's like now, even with with business, sometimes I think, you know, if someone doubts me, I think well, you don't know what I'm where I'm going to go with this. You don't know the level of work I'm going to put into this because there is something in me yeah. which is like it's a rage in there that I can just tap like that. But this and a heartbeat, 
one of my kids can call me and it and it's I'm soft with my wife Joe and she Joe didn't know me when I played cricket and I tell her this and she's like no way that you were never like that and that's that is it a paradigm I don't know is it it's that that's uh the softness and the and the hardness mm. of maybe still within male and female energy, I don't know, but mm. I find the whole subject fascinating. Well, there's a great quote on this, and I think that what you're tapping into there, Sats, is I've really thought about this as well. It's like, you know, what is a good man, right? Like, what is a good man is a great question. And there's someone who I, you know, even to mention his name polarises people, so I won't, because I think we've probably already polarised people enough in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> um, but... A safe man is not a good man, right? A good man is a very dangerous man who has it under voluntary control. If I go and hang out with my my friend who's been in the army, I li- my wife, you are so safe because he knows himself. He knows his capacity for darkness. He knows his aggression. He knows his rage. But if you go and hang out with someone who's safe and nice and lovely but they have no idea of those primal energies that live inside them. They're some of the most dangerous people that you can imagine. They, they are safe men are men who know themselves and they have it under voluntary control, you know, and they've got it. And that's through values and through awareness and practices and things like that. I, you weren't aware Luke that you had that inside you until that guy said something. And now you are, I think it makes you a, a much more aware kind of conscientious person because now you can use it when you need it. I have to, I have to pick up on just one. Luke, you talking about you as the cricket player, probably <laughs> the biggest thing and and uh, Simon, you talking about the those different energies within your work when I was uh, play professional football, the one balance I really struggled with was I was a defender and that was warrior, aggressive, tackle, you know, all that kind of stuff. But then when I had the ball, you had to completely change and you were creative, you were light on your Mm. feet, you had to think completely differently and I couldn't get the balance. So I I thought, right, if I'm just aggressive with everything and I would be really good, you know, defending and but as soon as I had the ball, I'd be rushed and I'd be kicking it out of play and I'd be angry and it just didn't work. Whereas when I went the other way, and I thought, right, let me just be really calm and relaxed. I felt like I was being pushed around a little bit and I wasn't defending as well as I could do. But once I had the ball, I was quite creative. I was quite free and flowing. But the two just didn't intertwine with me. But when you were talking there about having those different energies, mm. it, it literally just sparked in my head that that's probably the biggest thing that I struggled with was being all in on one or all in on the other. Mm. And I think as a man, and take it away from professional yeah. football and a sport having that element of you know of having both in your armor and you know having that aggressive side and not feeling ashamed of that but also having that feminine energy and like you said Simon you need both of those for your line of work you feel yeah and I think sometimes you know if I don't if I don't let knowing yourself you know like for me I think I have a bit more primal energy I don't want to compare myself to anyone else, but I have quite a lot of primal energy at this age and I know it reduces as you get older and if I block it up, it gets dammed up and then it gets like, I have to, you know, I can't dam it up. So I need to find ways of using that. Otherwise, I'm not as gentle with my family and wife as I'd like to be. I'm a little bit more judgmental, a bit harsher, a bit harder, but it's a real practice. And I'm learning, knowing when not to, and when you use that, maybe there's a bit of wisdom involved in that. Definitely need it much less than I think I do. 
you know, I definitely don't need it very often. What is it? That It's that quote, isn't it? It's, um, it's better to be a warrior than a garden than a gardener in a war. <laughs> better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. I've got to wrap this up at some point, but I've got one more question for you, Simon. I'm fascinated by what um, opinions and reactions we'll get from this podcast. I think it'll be it'll be amazing. <laughs> it'll be so interesting. I've got one more question for you, Simon, because you've obviously been on a big personal journey and are on a personal journey, you know, and I, I know that uh, on a you know personal level myself. So here's my question. What would you tell a younger version of yourself now, Simon? How old? Okay, that that Simon Cousin who was just coming out of England on 19s cricket team, going into professional cricket, what would you tell him now? I'd tell him that nothing lasts and to find things that last, that are, that are more than a moment and that everything that you think that lasts doesn't. And so to find things that last and that are a bit more... Um, that lasts more than a moment. You know what I mean? Like it's it, for me, you know, it's, it's a, it's a teaching around dopamine and all sorts of things, but it's like everything that I valued when I was 21, even if I'd got it, it would have been over before it begun. Right. So it's like a wicket. I mean, how long does that last? Uh, a trophy. Even if you were, I mean, Liam Plunkett tells the story. He won the world cup and he T20 world cup and he sat on his couch that night and everything he'd ever chased was done. You know, sometimes, and then there's things like intimate relationships, taking responsibility, being a son, being a father, being a good friend. These things give you a more sort of longer lasting feeling of happiness and joy. So I think a little bit over like chasing pleasure over chasing happiness, you know, what's the difference between pleasure and happiness? The big the big thing that's helped me a lot is to, to try and find meaning rather than pleasure try and find meaning rather than pleasure. You know, a lot of what I was chasing as a cricketer was, would have gone as quickly as it had come. Thank you, Simon Fraser. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for listening to the Understanding Men podcast. You can find us on all major social platforms, including Spotify, YouTube, Instagram and TikTok. And we will be promoting every episode via our own personal social media channels as well. So please come and find us. I'm certain that this podcast will create opinion and I would love to hear it. So you can put it out in the open or you can message us privately. We'll be reading them and and all opinions are welcome. If you like what you've heard, then go ahead and hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. And lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be very welcome. I did notice someone gave gave us a one-star, which does make me chuckle sometimes. But the reviews and the ratings will help other people find us, so thank you. Guys, everybody, thanks so much for being part of this and listening, and goodbye for now.